Our text is Psalm 111. Psalm 111. It begins, the text begins and it ends with the word praise or hallel in Hebrew. And thus it is part of what are known as the hallel psalms, which run through Psalm 118. And they're traditionally used around Passover celebrations. Psalm 111 is also known as an acrostic poem. A-C-R-O-S-T-I-C. A-C-R-O-S-T-I-C. Acrostic poem. That is, it's a poem which has 22 lines. You'll, you, you can see this in most English Bibles. The first eight verses have two lines. The last two verses each have three lines for a total of 22 lines. So it's a poem with 22 lines. And each line begins with the next consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That's what an acrostic poem is. And this... Though it's lost in English translation, this was done to aid in memorization, to help a person memorize the text. And it was also done to show the poet's desire to set forth the subject with some completeness, to cover the subject, if you will, from A to Z. From the first letter of the alphabet to the other letter, to the last letter. Yet, since it's a poem, this device, this acrostic device, it constrains the poet. That if you commit yourself to this device, there's only so many linguistic moves you can make. So he has to briefly allude to his topic, and then he has to move on. And here, he marvelously covers the works and the word of God in a mere 72 Hebrew words. Three or four words per line. So we'll make two points. Works in verses 1 through 6 and word in 7 through 10. Again, I remind you the answers are posted on the bulletin board. Um... So first, work. Psalm 111, verse 1. The psalmist here, he starts with this declaration of his resolve to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart. Extol is a wonderful word. It means to acknowledge or to confess or to give thanks. But here... Especially it means public acknowledgement. Notice, I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the council of the upright and in the assembly. The public declaration. Praise in the Psalms is public and corporate. Even where the praise is the song of an individual. As this one is. Its mere existence in the collection of the Psalms places it into the public life of the community of Israel. 
the worshiping community. If you look at verses 2 and 3, and the 2 and 3 are sort of like a heading. They sort of signal what's to follow. They're an announcement of the theme, if you will. And you get the reasons for the, the psalmist's desire to extol the Lord, for, for the public praise. He says, great, great are the works of the Lord. Notice this in the text. God's works are mentioned here. His deeds are mentioned in verse 3. His wonders are mentioned in verse 4. The power of his works is mentioned in verse 6. The works of his hands is mentioned in verse 7. God discloses himself. He is known. We come to know God in his works. Never apart from his works, always in his works and through his works. For if he didn't act, we would not be, much less come to know him. But the triune God acts. He does great works, the psalmist says. God the Father, through the mission of the Son, And the procession of the Spirit creates, and He sustains, and He guides, judges, redeems, consummates, perfects His work. These are the great works of the one who is the Lord, Israel's and our God. And this is how we know Him. His being itself would be purely incomprehensible to us if He didn't act. And do these great works. And so seeing the works, embracing the works, the psalmist and we, we praise the Lord, the worker. We move from the works of God to the God of the works. We move from the benefits to the benefactor. And that's what the psalmist is doing in this text. All of these works of God the second half of the second line in verse 2 tells us are pondered by those who delight in them. This, this verse is inscribed uh, over the Cavendish Laboratory at Cambridge, uh, the place of numerous advancements in the physical sciences. And the verse is a fitting charter for the scientist. Or the artist, the works of the Lord are pondered by all who delight in them. But that, as we shall see, is not the focus here. The focus here is not on the work of creation. The great works that the psalmist is extolling are God's redemptive works in the history of Israel. So when the text says, that God's works are pondered. Notice that in the text, pondered. The idea means, and some Bibles translate it this way, it means that they're studied. They're studied. The idea is that they're sought or they're searched out. One inquires into these works with diligence and devotion. 
The one who ponders the works of God, the great works, meditates on the text, which enshrines these works, questions the text, probes it, seeks its connection to other texts, and allows themselves and all their cherished assumptions to be radically questioned by the text. The word pondered, it's used of Ezra, where we're told that Ezra devoted himself to the study, same word, study, and the observance of the law of the Lord. So the study then, the pondering of the works of God in the history of Israel, because those are the works that are in view here. The history of the covenant. That is a sacred calling. The pondering of the works of God in the history of the covenant is a sacred calling. It's a work of holy, sanctified, chastened, repentant, attentive, singularly focused, prayerful reason. It's not something we can flit about casually. Think of what it would require to ponder the works of God in the history of the covenant. Minimally, it requires the mastery of the contours, the substance, the logic of a vast amount of material. For God did not give us an index card or a short piece of devotional literature. He gave us this big fat collection of 66 ancient books. Those are the works that the psalmist is talking about pondering. I often, thought, I often think that if we could retitle our Bibles, you know, take Holy Bible off the front, I know that might sound... I don't mean this in any, any, any way other than reverently, and put the history of the covenant on the front of the book, that we might approach the book more seriously. That it might remind us, oh, yes, I have to read from the history of the covenant today. What are you reading? I'm reading the history of the covenant. It gets across the idea that it's one long, organic, complicated story. Whereas the Bible, you dip into it, you dip out, you dip in, you dip out. Who would read the history of the covenant that way? Nobody reads the history of World War II that way. And so, if you're going to ponder or study the history of the covenant, this this task that the psalmist sets before us calls for close and careful and strenuous, sustained reading of the text. It's the work of a lifetime. It, It involves all the faculties and powers that God has given to human beings. And it's not just for academics or professional theologians. The text says it's for all who delight in his works. These works are pondered by all who delight in them. Because they're delightful works. Where delight is absent, study is absent. Right? Nobody studies diligently the stuff they don't delight in unless they're forced like a young person in school to do it. Where delight is absent, study is absent. People study and search out the stuff they delight in. Delight kindles study. It kindles it. 
And study leads to greater delight. And this leads to greater and more robust and more intelligent and more worthy praise. Praise which accords with the greatness of the works that are being searched out. And the greatness of the worker. This is what the psalmist is after in verse 2. These works, delighted in, sought out, are called in verse 3, glorious and majestic. For they flow out of the glorious and majestic being of God. Right? They come out of the infinite depths of who God is, and He is glorious and majestic. These are then royal works to the psalmist. Kingly acts. Again, you could title the book The History of the Kingly and Royal Acts of the Triune God. These works are commanding in their splendor. This God doesn't act haphazardly. He doesn't, he doesn't act in a sort of loose, kind of ad hoc sort of fashion. A little work here, a little work over there. He's not scattering his works about sort of randomly. They're integrated. Like his plan is. Like his decrees are. And thus they can't be approached approached in an ad hoc manner. These are works which are not only kingly and commanding in their splendor. Notice the word glorious. In these works is reflected the glory and the majesty of God himself. So that boredom with the history of the covenant is a sign of great spiritual malaise. We're not bored with the things we delight in. And so we're told in the second half of verse 3, notice this, that these works, uh, that through these works, God's righteousness endures forever. Here's where we see clearly that the works in view are redemptive works, works of judgment, works of salvation, judgment unto salvation. God's righteousness is inner rectitude, his uprightness, his justice and integrity, it's manifested in his fidelity to his people, in delivering Israel from oppression and bondage. Righteousness is God acting on your behalf. It's his fidelity to the covenant. And notice this in the text. It's the psalmist says, God's righteousness endures forever. This, this note of forever, it's pervasive in the poem. Here, his righteousness endures forever. In verse 5, he remembers his covenant forever. In verse 8, his precepts are established forever. In verse 9, his covenant is ordained forever. And in verse 11, to him belongs eternal praise. So, what is the psalmist doing by this? He doesn't have much space. He doesn't have many words. He's constrained by his form. And yet, the deeds are repeated many times, and this idea of forever is repeated. He's saying these works of God, they don't slip off into the mists of the past. They abide. They remain. 
They're enshrined in the history of the covenant. They're memorialized, these works, by Israel and by the church. And so the works of God are to be the permanent, enduring object of our study, of our everlasting delight. The stuff we read in the history of the covenant is not just back there. Because the righteousness of God endures forever. You can see this in verse 4. He says, he has caused his wonders to be remembered. Here the psalmist is doing a lot of evoking, again, because his space is limited. The word wonders is commonly used, it's the word used around the mighty acts of the exodus. And the exodus is the great act of this righteousness of God. In the Old Testament, it's the crown of all God's glorious and majestic deeds. And Israel constantly looks back to these wonders with wonder of its own. It never loses wonder in the, in the wonder of the exodus. And so when the poet says he's caused his wonders to be remembered, he's referring to the institution of the Passover. Because the Passover is the permanent memorial. It's the remembering of the Exodus. Right? It's the ritual which God gives to Israel to make the saving acts of the Exodus present from generation to generation. In doing this, in accomplishing the Exodus and establishing its eternal memory in the Passover, God himself, the text says, causes causes his wonders to be remembered. This is a magnificent thing. The wonders endure forever because God himself has established their perpetual memorial. This is what God has done in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God has wrought your exodus. Our departure. Exodus means departure. Our departure from sin and death from the house of bondage. And he has permanently memorialized his wonders in the Lord's Supper, the New Testament Passover. He has caused his great wonder to be, to be remembered. He provides a remedy against our forgetfulness and our fickle memory in the sacrament, the memorial of Christ's body and blood. The wonders endure. We have access to these wonders and to their power in the word and in the sacrament and through the presence of the Spirit. So the next line, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. This is a sort of um, a, a commonplace, a trope in Israel that alludes, again, the psalmist is alluding of course, this is true of the Lord generally, but these attributes are revealed to Moses after the incident of the golden calf. So here in the text, tersely to be sure, because he's constrained by his form, we have already moved from the Exodus and the institution of the Passover out into the wilderness of Sinai. The Lord is gracious and compassionate is a reference to the way he revealed himself to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. And so this righteousness of God, which endures, which is mighty, which doesn't slip off, it is gracious. 
and compassionate. Right? That's how God revealed himself to Israel. He heard their cries. He acts to deliver them. And so the Lord is abundant in grace. He's tender in mercy. He reveals himself this way in his acts. Verse 5 says he provides food for those who fear him. This is, of course, a general truth. But here it's speaking of providing for Israel in the wilderness by the gift of the manna. Bread from heaven, which prefigures and points to Jesus. The life-enduring, life-giving bread of God. He remembers, the text says, his covenant forever. There's forever again. The covenant first made with Abraham, but now in our poem is being spoken of as being enlarged and established at Sinai. God causes you to remember his covenant because he remembers his covenant forever. And remembering, as we've often said in here, remembering is a covenantal word. The idea is not that God might forget or that something might slip his mind. The idea is that he holds his covenant with Israel and with you in Christ. He holds that covenant in perpetual memory and he acts in terms of it. So when the scripture speaks of God remembering his covenant, it means he acts in terms of the covenant. So this this covenant, where the law was given, also included a promise, the promise of the land. And so the poem quite naturally moves to that subject in verse 6. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. The conquest of Canaan is God remembering his promises, remembering his covenant, showing, disclosing revealing the power of his works, giving his people possession of the land. And so the poet has moved here with great economy from the Exodus to the Passover, through the wilderness, to the land. Why has he done that? Because that's the spine, right? That's, that's the backbone. That's the central axis of the history of the covenant. And to be a ponderer, a studier of the history of the covenant is to move this way, these events, through these events. This is center stage in the history of the covenant. And that pattern points to your exodus. Think about this. This is not just Israel's life. You have an exodus from sin. You have a pilgrimage through the wilderness of life. And you have an internal inheritance in view in the land of the new heavens and the new earth. Israel's story is recapitulated in the church. And all of this because God acts. I often wonder, you know, why Israel, out of all the swarms of gods and religions in the ancient Near Eastern world, Israel's God has endured and survived and shaped the world. Because it's this God. He acts with glorious majesty. He remembers the covenant. He causes his works to be remembered. Those are the works, or at least a quick summary of them. Ponder them. Search them out. Delight in them. Inquire after them. 
Second point is the word. If you go to verse 7, it's something of a bridge that looks both forward and back. The works of his hands are faithful and just. Irenaeus, second century church father, has a wonderful image where he says that God, the Father, does his works through his two hands, the the Son and the Spirit. The Son and the Spirit are the two hands of the Father. Through them, God does all his just and faithful works. All the precepts of the Lord are trustworthy, the text now says. So now, the text has moved from works to word. But the key thing to see here is that Scripture itself is a work of God's hands. It's one of the great and wondrous deeds of the Lord for which he is to be extolled. Scripture itself, then, his precepts, are glorious and majestic. By it, his wonders are remembered. By Scripture, he upholds his covenant forever. Out of that history, that history of Israel that the poet's narrating, out of it, its consummation in Jesus, out of that emerges Holy Scripture. So think of it this way. When God acts, he speaks. If God didn't, then even the bare acts would not be enough. They would be an enigma to us. He not only acts, but then he tells us what the acts mean. He speaks. And when he speaks, he has the speaking recorded, memorialized in text. So that scripture doesn't just fall down out of heaven. It emerges from the history of the covenant. It emerges through God's mighty and glorious and majestic works. Thus we have the law. And later we get the prophets. And finally we get the scriptures of the New Testament. Little by little by little, scripture is added. And the big fat book is built up as the history of the covenant unfolds. And the book itself is one of the great mighty works of the covenant. So... Scripture, then, is a wonder testifying to the other wonders. And like the other wonders, it's, it's permanent. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord, like all his wonders, endures forever. The text says that his precepts are enacted in faithfulness and uprightness. Again, the word enacted is important because it tells us that Scripture is an act, an action of God. Every bit as much an action as the exodus or the conquest. It's not just a communication of information about the exodus or the conquest. It's not even just the history of the covenant. It's the living, permanently enduring history of the covenant. It's, the, it's an action of God, and it's a place where God acts. So verse 9 is a summary of how we got the word of God. Again, in the, pro, in the uh, poet's great economy. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. 
Here he means he ordained his covenant in the form of the law. He acted to redeem Israel. He gave Israel a law. Holy and awesome, the psalmist says, is his name. After this short recital. Holiness speaks of God's utter uniqueness. God is singular. He's transcendent. It's a kind of root attribute of God, holiness. It speaks of his burning purity, which he manifested when he appeared in fire and smoke on Sinai to give the law to ordain his covenant. And awesome means terrible, fearsome, (coughs) evoking holy dread. Beautiful, enticing, dangerous splendor. That's what the being of God is like, and that's reflected out into the works. Of course, this God does not stay locked away in his purity. He turns toward us in mercy. Cleanses us of our our pollution, chooses a people, gives them the law, gives them the land. And so the psalmist says, holy and awesome is his name, meaning his very godness. Notice that the psalmist has moved here from the works to the name, from the being of the worker of wonders. From the works back to the being, I mean. He's moved from the works back to the being. So, this is sort of like a two-way street. We can, we can think of it this way. We could say it this way. God is known in his works. And the whole psalm is an ode to those works. But it's important to say it this way. God is known in his works. While we celebrate the works, we praise and we worship and adore the holy and awesome name itself. We study, we ponder, we revel in the benefits, but we worship the benefactor. God is known, this God, holy, awesome, glorious, majestic, righteous, eternal. He is known in his works. And finally, in the, in the text, they, they've entered the land, they've, they've taken possession of the land. Verse 10 reminds Israel and us as well that the fear of the Lord is the beginning or the root or the first principle of wisdom. The psalmist is doing a, a number of things here as poet. Awesome in verse 9 and fear in verse 10 are from the same root word. So the holy and awesome one is to be feared. Fear is, Spurgeon says, fear is something like a sacred compound of joy and trembling. And so, it's interesting that the psalmist concludes this psalm, and it's puzzled some scholars, with a a reference to wisdom literature, with the kind of thing you might find in the book of Proverbs. One of the things this teaches us, I think, is that wisdom can never be reduced to cleverness, to knowing how to get things done or make things work, as valuable as that might be, or to negotiating the world shrewdly. Wisdom comes from the works and word of God, 
studied and engaged and pondered in the fear of this one. And he says, all who follow his precepts have good understanding. So after redemption, right, after the giving of the covenant and the possession of the land on the way to the renewed land, we have a word to be engaged with. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. Notice, notice this. This might seem out of order at first. Understanding here follows obedience. All who follow, all who do, all who ponder and seek out his precepts have good understanding. Obedience begets understanding, which leads to fuller obedience. People who are not going to obey until they understand everything are never going to obey. So this is the work. And this is the word of the holy and awesome one. They're to be studied and pondered and sought out. Because this history is the history of your redemption. Your past, your present, and your future. And this wisdom, these precepts, they're our life. They are our understanding. And so, not simply as here in our text in the assembly of Israel, but in this assembly, which is an assembly united in the heavenly Zion, the city of the living God among myriads of angels, in the church of the firstborn, in the midst of the spirits of these righteous men now made perfect, before Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, in whom great and greater wonders have been accomplished. There, in that assembly, we declare that as his righteousness, his wonders, his covenant, and his word endure forever, we agree with the psalmist's conclusion. So to him belongs eternal praise. Amen.